Hello and welcome to Series 7, Episode 4 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello, how are you? I hope that you've had a good week. First off, I've got to say thank you so much to all of you that got in touch with me after last week's episode with Sophie Hagen. It seemed that it really resonated with a lot of you. So thanks so much to those of you that got in touch. It really does mean so much to me. I've got another fantastic episode today, David Atherton. You'll be aware of him probably because of the Bake Off, but he's done a lot since then. And we talk about, of course, we talk about the Bake Off a little bit, but we talk about his incredible work in the medical sector and also what he's been up to since and about his journey of self-acceptance. I loved this chat and I really hope that you do too. I've had a great week. I've been at the Soho Theatre all week and I met loads of you. Loads of you came and said hi and said how much you enjoy out. It really meant the world to me. It really, really did. So thank you so much. It was a super week. I really enjoyed doing my show there. It felt very special to be at the Soho Theatre playing the main space in there and having the whole week sold out in in quite a lot of advance. Those of you that have been listening to this podcast from the start or indeed those of you that have been listening Oh, even further back, six or seven years ago, when Tom and I started Like-Minded Friends, you will know that it's been a real journey for me, finding my audience, finding my voice as a stand-up, working out how to be funny for an hour and how to do that in a way that feels truthful to me, for want of a better word. And yeah, I really feel like I'm getting there now. And I've uh, found my audience. I found so many of you. And so... I'm having a wonderful time on the tour and it means the world to me that I'm turning up to all these places, some of which I've never ever been to before and it's sold out and it just feels really special. So I'm really thrilled. You can probably hear that I'm smiling. It just means the world to me. It really, really does. Okay, let's get on with today's episode. As always, I'm going to share a couple of emails from listeners before we get on to the brilliant chat that I've got to share with you with David Atherton. Okay. Here we go. Hi, Susie. I wanted to reach out and let you know how much I appreciate this podcast. I can't really put into words how important it is to share the reality of LGBTQIA plus lives and how normal we are. It's comforting to hear that feelings such as shame and fear growing up are not exclusive to my experience and that things really do get better. I recently started binging your podcast from the beginning and I've had so many epiphanies about my sexuality growing up and I'm only on series two particularly the episode with Laura Checkley who explained that she was obsessed with one of her teachers this brought back similar experiences that I had when I was younger I had a terrible childhood not feeling safe at home or at school and I would spend a lot of time by myself my peers at school took my aversion to people and the boys in particular to mean that I was gay and would bully me by labeling me a lesbian not that I fancied any of the girls either however I had a handful of female teachers I was obsessed with both at school and at college. And I would often pathetically hang around where I knew they might be at break times, just on the off chance that I might get to talk to them. At the time, I simply felt drawn to them and didn't really understand why. Looking back, I clearly fancied them. I just had no idea how to express it. Emma Kennedy's explanation of intense female friendships probably describes it the best. It took me many years to accept my authentic self in terms of sexuality. And I spent a long time in a relationship with a man whose response to me expressing it, in brackets for the first time, that I might be bisexual, was, I'm not sharing you with anyone, which simply solidified the shame I already felt. And I've come to learn since is a stereotypical way to view bisexual and pansexual people. That we are some sort of a fetish or an excuse to have a threesome, or that we are greedy, or that we're just gay deep down and we're in that famous river in Egypt, denial. 
It wasn't until a couple of years ago when I was 27 that I came out officially and felt comfortable identifying as a bisexual, although I have a strong preference for women. I still have negative connotations with the word lesbian in reference to myself. That is, thanks to those ignorant bullies. I'm sure that, over time, with more self-discovery, the label I might choose will change, but for now, this one will do. I think your podcast opens the door to having much more open conversations around sexuality and identity. It not only makes me feel less alone, but helps me understand that I'm not strange or disgusting for pursuing my gayness and expressing it openly. Apologies for the rambling email. I didn't find it rambling at all. I felt compelled to reach out and let you know the positive impact your podcast has. For the first time ever, it's made me feel normal. I recently proposed to my girlfriend, now fiancé, and we're planning to get married next year. I never thought it would be possible to be this happy, particularly with a woman. I'd like to thank you so much for normalising the LGBTQIA plus experience and shining a light on it for so many different people. The community being seen and validated brings me so much joy. Keep up the good work. I've got a lot of episodes to catch up on, so I'm going to leave it there. Thanks. And that's from Hannah. Oh, Hannah, thank you so much for your email and for the kind things that you said about this podcast. It really is a passion project for me and that it means this much to you is is enough. Uh, Thank you very, very much. It really does mean a lot to me. You mentioning Laura Checkley's episode. I'm not sure if we talk about it in the episode, uh, but there's a Rona Cameron book, I believe, don't quote me on it, but I believe it's called 1975 or 1979, A Big Year in a Small Town. And Rona Cameron talks a lot about her obsession with a teacher. Maybe you'll enjoy that book. I read it years ago and I I really enjoyed it then. So maybe that'll be something that you enjoy too. Okay, let's have another email. Thank you so much for that one. Hi, Susie. Firstly, I know I'm a couple of years late, but congratulations to you and Alice on your marriage and becoming mummies. I am a 46-year-old woman from Bristol and I wanted to share my story with you. I've only recently discovered your podcast after a friend of mine told me about this fabulous podcast he was listening to. He also recommended like-minded friends, so I'll head there next. I decided to have a listen on my hour-long journey home and I have to say I'm loving it. I've even ditched my audiobook to dedicate my time to you and your guests. It's now six weeks later and I'm partway through season six. Wow, you've really done that quickly. (laughs) I listen every moment I can. So much so that I now consider you a friend. You literally go everywhere with me. I like that I'm considered a friend. I appreciate that. My story. It seems I'm late to the party for most things. I came out as a lesbian when I was in my late 20s. I'd had boyfriends in my teens and early 20s, but I was never fully invested in those relationships. I would be taken in by the attention, thinking that it was what I needed. Thinking back... I can't say I was ever really sexually attracted to men, but at the same time, I don't really remember being attracted to women either. I've always considered myself to be open-minded and accepting of everything. Yet when I had a brief but very intense relationship with a female friend in my early 20s, I was adamant that that didn't make me gay. My moment of clarity happened while watching Alex Park's Women Fame Academy in 2003. It was honestly like a lightning bolt and everything suddenly made sense. I was faced with someone who I felt was like me and all those odd pieces slotted into place. I decided to come out to my friends at first on a trip to London. I was living in Bath at the time. We were going to a Christmas craft show and staying overnight. After dinner, I had taken a friend back to the hotel room. That's when I decided I couldn't hold it in any longer and said that I needed to tell her something and blurted out that I was gay. I remember she hugged me and told me it was amazing and then frog marched me down six flights of stairs singing I'm coming out at the top of her lungs all the way to the hotel bar. Here she got me to stand on a table where, and this is where the memory is sketchy, I'd had a lot to drink, either she or I 
not just told my four other close friends, but the entire bar. The first reaction from another friend was, fuck off, you're not. My heart sank. She was the one friend I really wanted acceptance from. Then she wrapped her arms around me and said that she loved me and it changed nothing. For the next few hours, I was bombarded with questions such as, do you fancy me? When I answered no, the reply was, why not? As well as, are you sure? Yes. Could you be by? I don't know. I felt very comfortable knowing that literally nothing had changed that night. And I went to sleep, cuddled up to a friend who just kept saying, I can't believe you don't fancy me. (laughs) I think we've all experienced those moments. Coming out to my mum was the next step. Knowing my mum, I should never have been worried. With my friend by my side, after many hesitations, I told my mum and her reaction was, oh, thank goodness, I thought it was something serious. And then, does that mean I won't get any grandchildren? I let her know that as far as I knew, my womb still worked, so you never know. Fast forward through 20 years, and I'm just at the end of a 13-year relationship. We have a beautiful six-year-old daughter, so the decision to split hasn't been an easy one, but we've grown apart and it's come to a natural end. The truth is, I'm beginning to question whether I'm actually asexual. I've never really had any sexual attraction to anyone of any gender, and I've always had a low sex drive, but not really knowing much about any other options, I felt I just had to label myself as a lesbian. Now I realise that I'm possibly or probably an asexual woman, and I'm still learning a great deal about myself and what that means. Listening to your show has taught me so much about the LGBTQIA plus family, so thank you to you and to your guests for opening up my mind to this big old rainbow-covered queer world. I'll keep my eyes peeled for your tour dates. Hopefully I'll catch one of your shows soon. And she would like to remain anonymous. She also says, P.S. Thank you for expanding my reading path so dramatically. I'd like to recommend a couple of books myself if you haven't already read them. Well, I'm always up for reading more books and I always love sharing them on here. It's always great to find something queer to read, isn't it? All the Young Men by Ruth Coker Burks. Now, I haven't read this one, but I think I do know what it's about. And it's worth noting that my friend Carrie Ad Lloyd, who has a brilliant podcast called The Grief Cast, if um, anyone is going through feelings of grief, and, you know, that could be something that's happened recently or something that happened a long time ago that you're still working your way through. I highly, highly, highly recommend her podcast. After my nan died, I found it unbelievably useful. And I know that a lot of friends have had similar feelings after they've lost people that, that they love dearly. I believe Ruth is on that is on that podcast talking about her book. She was a woman that looked after a lot of men during the AIDS crisis. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I can take uh, your recommendation. So I'm going to recommend it to everybody else on your behalf. But yes, I'm going to read that one. And I highly recommend the interview that Carrie does with her on Griefcast. And the other book she recommends is Love from the Pink Palace by Jill Nalder. Uh, both of them are about the AIDS crisis here and across the pond in America. We always love sharing book recommendations on here and I'm going to have a read of those. So thank you so much for getting in touch. It's amazing, isn't it, how when we grow, we get older, you know, labels can change and that's fine. My gosh, isn't it good that we live in a world? I mean, I know not everywhere. Please don't get me wrong. I know that it's there's a lot going on for our community at the moment, but labels can continue to change and our community is always there for each other. You know, things can change and you can uh work out who you are as you get older I think does that make sense I don't know if any of that just made sense but I think you know what I mean I hope you know what I mean unlike a more fancy podcast they probably would have cut that and said it better but I think you get me guys I think you get me right let's get on with today's episode it's the brilliant David Atherton I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did here's the conversation 
Anyone that knows me knows that I am a massive fan of the Great British Bake Off. So I am very excited today. David Atherton is a food writer, presenter, podcaster and nurse, but he's best known for winning the 2019 series of the Great British Bake Off. Before winning Britain's Best Love Cookery Show, David worked as a health advisor and nurse across the globe, including visits to Malawi, the Philippines, Bulgaria and Ethiopia, to name a few. His passion for finding delicious ways to stay healthy culminated in a cookbook, Good to Eat, featuring 100 fresh and healthy recipes. I've had a look through it and it looks incredible. David's also released three healthy cookbooks aimed at children, My First Cookbook, My Green Cookbook and My First Baking Book. You might have also seen him on Good Morning Britain, Steps Pat Lunch, BBC's Blue Peter, or you'll know him from his brilliant podcast with friend of the show, Michael Chakravarti, The Sticky Bun Boys, which I had to practice to get right, which you should listen to as well. I'm so excited to chat to him and hear his story today. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much. You've done a lot, haven't you? Whew, yeah, I'm quite old though. I'm, Are you? I turned 40 last week. Oh, that's not old. <laughs> no, it's, not, it's halfway, isn't it? Maybe? I don't want to go um, past 80. It might be halfway. But I think for, like, I found my 20s really stressful. <laughs> I've liked my 30s and everyone keeps telling me I'm going to love my 40s. Do you know, I've been exact same thing. I found 20s. I did a lot of fun things, but I wasn't. And I wasn't even out. Thirties uh, were a brilliant time of like comfort and excitement for me. Mm-hmm. And forties, yeah, I'm looking for. I'm I'm kind of liking the idea of being able to use it as an excuse to do like midlife crises type things. Oh, what do you want to do? Well, I pierced my ear with a needle the other day. Oh my god! Just like no a fourteen-year-old. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I did it when I was thirteen with a drawing pin. And oh, obviously ow, it healed. Fuck, that sounds time. horrible. Yeah, we all did it in class, and then. I've left it obviously since then, so it healed. Then I thought the other day, I'm just going to do this again with a needle because I'm 40. Like, yeah. And I'm running a marathon, which is not very midlife crisis. That's awful. No, I think that's quite midlife crisis. Oh, good. I think that's people going, I'm still young enough to do it. My body's still going. Yeah. And in reality, no one is ready for it, even when you're 25. (laughs) So 40, no. But I think that there'll be so many people listening to this podcast now being like, oh, fuck off you two. I'm 60. (laughs) As if you two know anything. And I know that. And you're right, just to be clear. But... I'm excited for 40s. One of my dearest friends, Jen Brister, is like, you're going to fucking love it, Ruffle. Yeah. You'll love it. I'm very excited. I don't... I think some people are obsessed with staying young, with like, mm. out, like with looks as well. Not yeah. Kind of I'm quite... Maybe it's because I've always been someone that people have always thought looked young. I'm quite happy to age. I quite like it. Yeah, but you're also good looking and that helps. Thank you. Do you know what? <laughs> with 40s, one thing I haven't hit yet, because I feel like I've still got quite a lot of energy, and we were just talking before... I haven't got kids. That's going to fuck it up. Most of my friends have kids and they are rough. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I thought I knew what a full day felt like. When it's, yeah, I mean, every day that I work, and that can be like travelling, you know, all over the country to do a show or going to a studio to film something or doing a whole bunch of podcasts, here, there and everywhere, all those days are easier than a full day with my daughter. And I prefer a full day with my daughter, but it is... Full on. Are you very modern though and try and do everything? Are you trying to like parent, work, do 12 jobs? So I'd never work on Wednesdays. That's like mine and her day together. Um, and I tend to not do anything else. I might send a couple of emails while she's having a nap. But I try to be really present, which is hard. Yeah, that's really good though. I think also... I mean, I'm there at the weekend as well and I'm there most nights and I don't want people to be listening to the same thing just one day <laughs> parenting a week, get a grip, Suze. I think... In the past, 
and I, I've lived in quite a lot of different countries where there's still this culture of a whole family and extended family looking after a child, a new child, especially because everyone lives in the same community. And we don't have that anymore. And that does make things really hard, I think. So much harder. We moved to Brighton so that we would be closer to my mum and dad. Well, no, for many reasons we moved to Brighton. But one of the bonuses was that we would only be an hour from my mum and dad. Yeah, which is great. But as people are getting older, as they're having babies as well, like my friend moved close to her parents and her parents are like, we've retired. We don't want this grandchild near us. (laughs) Maybe one afternoon every two weeks, but that's it. And she's gutted. Uh, yeah, that is tough. Luckily, my mum is absolutely obsessed with my daughter, so they're like best friends. So it's it's great. It's great. But yeah, that is the most tiring thing. Wait until you have a kid. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be like, you're looking well. I'll be like, Jesus, have you seen David? <laughs> but it'll be worth it and it'll be amazing. So um, you live in London now, but you grew up in Whitby? Yes, North Yorkshire, yeah. I like Whitby. Yeah, it's an interesting place. It's small and rural, but it's got quite a few things for it. It's, a, it's actually got the International Goth Weekends. Okay. Because Bram Stoker mm-hmm. didn't ever go to Transylvania, obviously. He wrote Dracula in Whitby, and then Dracula arrives in the last in the ship at the end. I've never actually read it. He arrives in Whitby, and so all the, all the Goths come to Whitby and have big weekends there, which is great. Once I was touring with Alan Carr in Whitby... Sorry for the name drop, but we went to a Dracula museum oh, in Whitby, yeah. and I mean it's the Dracula experience. It's called yeah, yeah. It is. Sorry, I was just pouring water. No one's having a wee in the studio. Um, yeah, it was. Um, I'd say it could do with a, a few Renos. Yeah. Could do with a few little renovations. Was it still like the person that's dressed up? Yeah, that chases you. Yeah, yeah. There was a little bit of that, and then there was like mechanical things popping out, but like they were. Yeah. Missing an arm, you know that yeah. sort of thing. My friend, when I was at school, was one of the people that dressed <gasps> up in a really horrible costume and kind of jumped out at people. Oh wow! But you should come back for one of the goth weekends because that is incredible. The whole town is just full of goths, and it's yeah, it's very cool. What like what about the the people that live there? Are they all like, oh yeah, this is great? Yeah, I think it's just become sort of with it? quite normal. Yeah. So it's a sea, and it's not a seaside town. It's like a port town. It, is it, has what, it got a seaside? Yeah, it has got a seaside, yeah. But I right, think okay. traditionally it would have been known as a fishing town. Yes, that's right. So yeah, like a port town. But it's now like fishing. No, it's now just a tourist beach. And there is a yeah. beach. It's like from the main town, it's just kind of to the side, but then it runs right along to a place called Sands End. Okay. And so it is a pro- yeah, beach place. And so now it's just kind of a holiday destination, which means that, yeah, there's it's quite a poor place. Yet they right. still vote Tory. Idiots. I mean, yeah, let's not get into that. Why? Why do people in the areas that get screwed the most over by the right side of politics vote for the right Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> no. Because the right are busy pointing at people that don't look like them. Yeah, and don't. they vote the all vote for Brexit as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of, uh, I know a lot of places like that also. Yeah, because, yeah, because the, because the media are so busy going, look at those. Those people are the reason you haven't got this. Yeah. It's just all distraction. Yeah. But I actually don't come from Whitby, Whitby, because Whitby is a small town and then there's all these villages okay. in the kind of the rural part around it. So you're in somewhere, so you're from rural Whitby, but you're actually from somewhere that's more rural than rural Whitby. Yeah, like a little village okay, that has great. a steam train that still goes through. I used to get a steam train sometimes to school and things. It's, a steam train now? I'm a big yeah. fan of trains, so that's actually quite thrilling for me. <laughs> yeah, the North York Moors Railway. It's really, it's really cool, yeah. 
So how big was your class at school? Was it quite a small yeah, school? Yeah, very. I think there was... I remember the year above me had two boys. So when it was sports day, we had to like race with them when we were going against other schools. There was 83 in the school... <gasps> But it That's was all there was loads and loads of villages around, and one of the villages had twenty five. So we were we were a reasonably sized one. Wow! Do those places still exist? Yeah, I went back with my kids' cookbooks. I went back and did some talks oh, in, so in nice. the schools, and it was great because you can just do a talk to the whole school all at once. And then I said, "There's a there's a school on my street in London, which is a brilliant school." Um, and they asked me to come in, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." And they're like, "Okay, it's going to take three days for you to get through all the classes." So, oh. Because they have like six hundred kids in this wow. school. Yeah, so it's in it's a quite primary school. Yeah. Wow. It's a very That's good one, busy. though. It's one of these ones that is a proper public. No, it's, public school meals really, really posh, doesn't it? I don't understand. Well, these yes, things. but it doesn't make any sense, does it? It's like in America, the public school system is what the public use. Weirdly, here, the public school system is what like it's like the top the blue percent. blood. Yeah, use. it's the top percent, isn't it? And then yeah. it's the private schools, and then it's the whatever it is. Normals. Anyway, comp. Yeah, comp. We didn't have any private schools or anything near me. So, yeah, it's a, the, this one in London is a really good school, public school, but it's outstanding. It's very good. Very good. I want my child to go there. That's, well, that's nice. You already live this. That's great. You're in the catchment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so what were you like as a kid? I, all I know is my grandma said that I was very, very confident. Like she thought I was going to be prime minister. I think I went. I think I spoke to, when I was four years old. I told my auntie that she shouldn't smoke because it's bad for her. And she's like, "What? It's the first time I'd ever met her." And so I think <laughs> I was quite a confident, outspoken child. But I came from a family. There was five kids, and mm-hmm. I had a twin brother. And so, and we lived in quite a small house. So I think we were quite used to kind of making our voices heard, vying for attention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't know you were a twin. That's not anywhere on your info. Yeah, we don't. He doesn't have Instagram. He's not on social. There media. it is. That's the thing. <laughs> but I mean, I I always do research and like read little bits and bobs about people. But um, but you, are you identical? No, that's the thing. I, I love my team. We're not identical, and we're very different. In fact, mm. like I remember at school, we when we went to secondary school, um, so we were about eleven years old. I was the smallest person in the school and had to get weighed and measured every week. And he was one of the tallest people in our year. And was like the hundred meter champion, and do you all think this when you were in the womb, he was just he taking did. all of the food? He totally did. So the, for the like the latter part of the pregnancy, I was crushed at the bottom, and I came out with arms all bent in and things, and he was way bigger than me. So yeah, we're not, and people always just thought we were brothers. No, mm. no one ever thought we were twins, and we had very different things in school. Like we were always really good friends, but I would do Holly's art homework, and he would do my maths homework. We had different <laughs> likes and dislikes, and yeah, that's handy. Yeah, so to me, it's just like, it was like having a brother or sister who's a friend who's the same age. We didn't have that competitive thing Mm. or that ridiculously close, weird thing that some twins have. What was your home life like? Home life was extremely religious. Right. Like, you know, when people say they're Christian in the UK and it's like, really? So first of all, do you go to church at Christmas? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Or do you have some views that you think align you to that? That yeah, side of sure. things. Do you occasionally go for a raffle when there's a party going on in the church garden to raise funds for a yes. roof? Yeah. Or are you someone that 
goes to church every week. That could be another thing. Or are you the kind of family that has a full-on prayer meeting and Bible study every single morning at breakfast time? You're not allowed to watch TV. You're not allowed to do anything on a Sunday that could be like sports or homework or anything at all. We were that kind of Christian family. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So is that sort of something that has come through your sort of like historically, is that how your family have always been? Like, is that what your grandparents are like and their parents? Have you always been... Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? When you're a child, you don't think of those things. And it's only as an adult I realised that my parents both came from Christian families, but not actually as strict and traditional as my parents. Oh, right. It just comes from my dad. He's just incredibly into Christianity and God. Like, it's all he thinks about. It's all he does. Like, nothing else. And he has chilled out. It's one of those things, as you get older, you probably chill out. Um, So it was definitely easiest for my younger sister. Um, But, yeah, it's, it's... driven by him and it is a it was a very traditional evangelical type of christianity so what is that when you say traditional evangelical so they would say very like they take everything very literally so it's like they're not the bible yes it's very bible believing and very literal like god created the world in Seven days. Seven days. Well, six days and rested for seven. Sorry. And <laughs> Jesus, I'm getting it wrong. Oh, Thank God, don't say Jesus. Oh, God, I say God. <laughs> yeah. And, Apologies. And all of those kind of things and very, very rule-based. Right, okay. But then they would say they weren't. Like They would then say that the most important thing is that you... I don't want to be talking about too much about this because I know I'm going to be preaching. <laughs> <laughs> they would say that you could only get to heaven through going to Jesus and all that stuff. Yeah, right, okay. All that shit. My assumption would be that as a child... You might be like, cool, this is just what I'm told. and it's just." But was there a point when you... I don't know, there are people that listen to the podcast that are really religious. It's actually quite a lot of emails that we get in about people trying to align their faith with their queerness. Um, which is, And people have come on the show and talked about how they've managed to do that. But was there a point for you where you were like, huh, if we're taking this all literally, you know, not even really necessarily to do with your sexuality yet, but was there a point when you thought, I'm not sure that I'm as aligned as that yeah I think very early on it's a strange thing because it's also what you know Mm -hmm. so like it's all consuming if you're part of a family that's that into it and you go to church and your friends are in that community and there's some nice parts of it like there's there's some kind of like nice warm feely bits and all that kind of stuff but very early on I've always been into kind of social justice and like my job I've worked in international development but even as like a tiny child I would find it so distressing if someone bullied someone at school or there was a fight or something like that and also I would look and think of the injustice of my mum being treated very differently being a woman Mm -hmm. to my dad in the church so aside from the fact that because I think I was I knew that I was um, queer from a very young age like probably five years old really as young as that yeah I definitely did god that's a long time to hold that secret if you came out when you were 24 or you came out when you were 29 so that's 24 years yeah I think yeah, which is why I'm not very emotional. <laughs> like, learned to become a like an ice queen. But I, yeah, I, I don't think I, the church didn't talk about, like talking about homosexuality in the church that I was in, it's like one of the, like the worst sins ever. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't brought up that often. Right. Whereas how women should be in the church was a very throwy thing. Oh, you should be wearing a dress. You should be wearing blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't speak. And so I probably didn't feel the target of the kind of the, what I saw as being very unfair. Um, until a bit later on, but I definitely did see it with other people, like women, or, 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 I don't know who else is. That's the when I think of churches, I always just think that women get the hardest, <laughs> the hardest ride. Yeah, I think that one thing that always, I always really, 
I went to a Catholic school and I remember there being so many people that would, you know, go to church every Sunday. But they were fucking horrible. <laughs> you know, there'd be the kids that would be bullying people, be the people that would, like, laugh at someone that's, like, experiencing homelessness on the street. You know, it would never be... You, that was the thing that I always... It would bother me when you think, well, you say all these things. You go on a Sunday and you do this and that and the other and then... You know, where are you being a kind person throughout? But they're not taught to be kind. They're taught to feel special and privileged and be arrogant. Like they say these things, Mm -hmm. but actually what they're being taught is we're actually better than these people and we should treat them like that. There's very, like my mum is just the most incredible person that does live it from the things that the Bible teaches Mm -hmm. in terms of just, she literally spent a whole life just serving people. It's all she does. Um, and just setting up brilliant things and just doing things. Like the other day I was speaking to her. She's she's still not retired. She's in her 70s and she's a community nurse. And she just found out that this woman hadn't been, like the carers weren't coming in to look after her. So she'd gone in with like a vacuum, her took her own vacuum cleaner, cleaned the house. And then she was sleeping there for the weekend and cooking for her because she wasn't going to be able to get any food. Like she's still, she's just that incredible person. Oh. But to me... That's nothing to do with Christianity. My mum is an amazing person. She'd be even better if she didn't believe in Christianity. <laughs> right, okay. You said that you realised you were gay when you were five. or you knew, Do you remember like having a crush or like, was there like a pinpoint moment? I don't think there was a pinpoint moment. And some of that is looking back retrospectively. But I knew then that I wanted to be like intimate with other boys. And not in like, it's not sexual then, is it? But I could still... In the same way that when you're young and someone's saying, like, oh, I want to have a girlfriend and things like that. Yeah. Like, I knew that I didn't. I wanted to have a boyfriend. Right. It's a hard thing to explain, yeah. isn't it? Because obviously as an adult, things, well, as you go through puberty, becomes very sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, there's, there's like that intimacy without the sexuality. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. On the podcast, when I've spoken quite often to gay women, we talk about intense female friendships that we are like that we've had with straight women that are or straight when we were teenagers straight girls where we're like no I just need to be near you like all of the time and like I'm in love with you but like don't tell anyone (laughs) like it's and I think that that sort of longing is uh well it's something that comes up a lot uh on, on on the podcast so then when you were sort of navigating your sexuality or maybe you had a word for it when would you have been in your teens then yeah, interesting for me. I never, I would have been in my teens, but I never admitted it. Right. But I had these strange internal conversations where I remember saying to myself that I'm not going to put off who I am as a person because I also didn't want to be defined as just being, because you know, who I am because of who I yeah. find attractive. And so I did things that people would typically think of a gay teenager would do, but I don't really think of it. I just think it's me. Because I also have come on a journey in the terms of I never call myself gay anymore. I call myself queer. Because I do just think everyone's just individual. It's just yeah. all of that stuff is just about mm-hmm. you as a person. But yeah, I started doing ballet dancing. So my brother was like the rugby champion and I was a ballet dancer. And I wore makeup when I was like 13. Like I was way braver in my teen years in a ridiculously rural Yorkshire town. And I do think I have to say I was privileged because I was I did get verbal bullying, but I was protected because my twin brother was the huge rugby star in the school. And I think I probably would have been more harshly bullied if that wasn't the case. And maybe I wouldn't have been as brave then to wear makeup and do ballet dancing and all of these kind of things. And how would your mum and maybe more your dad have responded to, to that? 
pretend it's not happening. Like really? they just they just excuse it away. Don't, that's the thing. Yeah, it's just such a a strange thing that you just excuse it away and say, "Oh yes, I used to know a friend who did musicals." Like, and yeah, he's and he was gay now. as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, had you sort of? Because I know that, you know, we mentioned uh, in the intro and you mentioned it as well about you sort of you've traveled the world and you've been like all over the place with work, you know, pre-becoming this sort of telly baker. Let's get back to before that. So when you were thinking, did you go off to university to do nursing? Yeah, I had a stranger because I did all my A-levels in art. So I always thought I was going to do art. But then after I finished school, it was kind of before everyone was doing proper gap years. I had four gap years um, and I went. That's actually when I started traveling and working in different countries. Ah. But to start off with, I was actually visiting my my parents' missionary friends. <laughs> and so that was a strange experience. The weird thing was, although I was stuck in this kind of Christian religious life that I knew I didn't want to be part of, I kept on like stepping into the next stage of it. <laughs> it took a long time to kind of like free myself from that. And part of that is because... I think it's always more complicated than people think, isn't it? And mm-hmm. my friends were Christians and they're still some of my greatest friends now. Mm-hmm. They're still the most amazing people. And to me, I didn't have that thing where I was pushed out or vilified from a group. So, because obviously, because I didn't come out as well, so that I was pushed away from that. So I wanted to be part of that life that I still had because there was such good mm-hmm. parts of it. And I'd spent so long pushing down the kind of the hatred and like building on the internalized homophobia. Mm -hmm. And so looking back now, I don't really know where I was at that time because I would have been very judgmental probably to other queer people. Really? While at the same time being very judgmental of people that were homophobic. Yeah. I think that happens. I think we can often be our own first bully. I was terrible to myself. Yeah, definitely. Horrible. And then other people. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I remember saying homophobic things and having homophobic things said about me. By the like the only other girl that was gay in my year. Yeah, that was the same with me. The other boy in my year, yeah. Like, yeah, uh, and I guess we saw something in each other. And yeah, it's horrible. It's sad. It's sad. Um, so when you were on, so you weren't on missions as such. You were just away. It was a um, not really, but I went out to visit pe- uh, missionaries who were there, and then I kind of got jobs. But I was still kind of in that community. Right, and whereabouts would that have been? Uh, so to start off, it was in Ivory Coast, right, Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa, um, which was a really amazing experience. I really liked that time in my life because I went from being eighteen and being with adults, and like grew up quite fast. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm just a very adventurous person, so it was this. It was the time when yeah, you didn't have gap years where everything was organised. You literally got on a plane and just landed down and, yeah, had Something to kind happened. of fend for yourself. And so were you just sort of putting thoughts of of who you really were just when you, like, reflect on that period? Would, would they come to mind or was that something that you had pushed down so hard that you didn't even experience it? Yeah, they would definitely come to mind. I think I've always been... People have often called me an overachiever, I don't think I'm a particular overachiever. I just think I kept busy all the time because I, I used to say that I hated my own company and friends would just laugh at that. But what the reality was, mm-hmm. I didn't like my own company because if I stayed too long in my own thoughts, then I would have to tackle those things. Yes. So in reality, I was always doing something or listening to something, mm-hmm. um, always busy with work, 
you know, you kind of fill up your day until the point like, oh, I've got to go to sleep now. And I'm up the next morning and going yeah. around with people. So I think I just didn't allow myself to, to deal with those things. And then you were really busy. You were saying before about your 20s being adventurous. Yeah. You were like, were you working with tropical infections all over the world? Is that what I read? <laughs> yeah. So I did my nursing degree in the UK, which okay. is very different to other university courses. It was the year, it was the times where I got paid to do it. And rightly so. That's how it should be now. But yeah, because you work. I was like, all my friends at uni, well, I didn't really have many friends because everyone else was doing a few lectures and then they were doing part-time jobs and doing things. I was working in the hospital yeah, the whole time. Right. You don't have time. And also, then, that would be, a, traditionally, that could potentially be a place where you would maybe meet other queer people there might be a queer society you know I think certainly friends and also you know friends that have come on the pod because you're my friend now that's how it works you know those times those late night chats boozy you know often that can be a place where people first start thinking about their sexuality or experimenting but if you're just in a hospital you're busy you're too busy you're too busy to be queer yeah exactly that (laughs) for me that wasn't the time I and I would crave it I remember seeing other people if I was, as I was going to my lectures, I'd see other groups of people, other, and you, I just knew there were groups of queer people chatting and doing things, and and I just couldn't be part of that because I was too busy. And then my my fourth year of uni, because mine was a four year one, I'd qualified as a nurse after three, and so my final year of doing that, I then worked full time while still doing my final year of my degree. Then I did my master's degree straight away, where I worked twenty five hours a week, two night shifts, and then did a full time master's. And halfway through that, found out my we got raided by the police because my flatmate was a paedophile. So I got my computer and my oh phone my taken God. off me as well for six months. And I still managed to finish my master's degree. <laughs> oh, my God. It was a crazy time. And then after that, I then went off to do stuff like jobs abroad. So I didn't really stop. I was very, very busy. And that was uh, intentional. Yeah. Yeah, I think to so. To be that busy. And I'm just wondering, because we're a similar age. You're a couple of years older than me. But I won't, you know, I, I won't judge you for that. <laughs> I think definitely boys of our of our generation really grew up with like, I can remember bits and pieces about the AIDS epidemic. But was that something that you would have been, you know, was that another thing on top of all the religious homophobia and the, you know, the, the internalised stuff? Was that something that you were aware of growing up? And then certainly in medicine, was there like an an aftermath of all of that? Yeah, I think so. Because then I did, when, I, when I've worked in, I've worked in various African countries and often it's been on HIV and AIDS yeah, of course. programs. Um, and so I, I think, considering I'm not cautious in the sense of like the things I've done in the world, going off on adventures and mm-hmm. I've had malaria nine times, like so many different... Nine been, times? Yeah, been evacuated from two war zones by special forces. Like I've done really scary things, but I was terrified at that point because I think all of the stuff out there at that time was to terrify you and obviously I got it from multiple angles because I was getting like the Christian side of it as well of course yeah so it's kind of like and plus I do think that I'm not as sexual as other people like I don't need to have sex like other people like a lot of my friends do like it's not something and it's not I'm not because obviously there's people who are asexual I'm not asexual I love sex when I have it but I don't have that drive like I can go two weeks mm-hmm. without needing to have sex. Yeah. and so I think it was easier at that time for me as well I think if I'd been a different person that was more sexually driven I would have found it more difficult but and I that- wonder if your sex drive was impinged by 
all of those external things. So I think that can happen as well. Yeah, probably because, like I say, I'm not... Because I think I would joke back then and say, like, oh, I'm asexual, but I'm not. No. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I that that could be the case, yeah. Tell me about being evacuated from two war zones. What happened? Oh, I, can't ju- in... I can't just jump over that. <laughs> that sounds sort of far too much like a movie. Yeah, it was in West Africa. It was just a... Uh, it was just the poli- it was just politics. Just politics. Politics with the governments and a rebel group, and it's the kind of thing where there's a coup d'état, but the coup d'état fails. If there's a coup d'état, it's usually not that bad because then another group just takes over the country. Right. Okay. If it fails and then the country's split between two groups, right. Okay. Then there's the fighting, and we just happened to be in the town that was on the middle. So I remember like bombs going off and all the glass <gasps> in our house breaking, and the tracer bullets going over the top, and then. But I'm privileged because the next day the British Special Forces flew in with the Hercules and the Gurkhas took us out. Yeah. So yes, it was scary for a day, but way more scary for all the people that lived there that yeah. then had to go through that for week after week after, or yeah. years, in fact, it dragged on till. So yeah, I, I've been through scary experiences, but I've always known my privilege as being a British person yeah. that can be that can often have things fixed. Yes, you're absolutely right. And it's so good to keep that in mind when, you know, just in life, isn't it? It's so good to remind yourself of that. Yeah, because I, I, I've had malaria nine times, but malaria really kills through poverty. Like, I had it, and I would get treated very quickly, and I'm privileged because of what I know, and I was yep. living next to a hospital, but a third of the people in our hospital had malaria, and lots of them died. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there is such a privilege that I think I've always known in my life as well, and I've sometimes used that as a bit of a stick for saying, you don't have to be happy all the time, David. You've got a lot of privilege as well. Um, which probably also contributed to me not coming out and allowing myself to have that part of my life until later on, probably. I'm getting more and more about when you were on Bake Off and everyone was like losing their minds that you were like, it's just baking. (laughs) (laughs) You were very level-headed in the tent. So I think that it's making a lot of sense. It's making a lot of sense. And so what was the catalyst to you thinking, okay, well, I've known this about myself forever. And I've been running away from it. And I've been very busy. I'm so tired. I've been so busy. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't bloody stopped. Was there a moment where you went, I've got to deal with this? I can't really pinpoint that moment so much. I know that there was always a desire to have a relationship. Like, I was one of those people that was a really good friend to so many people. (laughs) But then would see so often, like, and I I would be a good friend because I wanted that special friendship. And... They would see me as a, like a really, really close friend, but then they would have their partner who mm-hmm. was like always superseded me, quite rightly. Yeah. And so I probably got to the point of just thinking I really did want a relationship for myself. Um, and then also got drunk one day and told one person broke the seal. Right. And that's it. Are your family still in the church? Are your siblings still sort of very connected to their faith? My mum and dad are still in the church, yes, although they are more chilled than they were. And then my twin brother and older sister are Christians, not as not in as strict a sense as my parents. And then my older brother and younger sister and myself are not. Right. How much do you think that, you know, what you what you were told when you were growing up, how much of that do you think kept you in the closet? Was that sort of the majority of the reason? Yeah, I think so. I think, and th- those things... I incorporated those things into my life because it was me that was keeping me in the closet. Yes. Um, But it was those things that I was told, yes. Yeah. That it's so, as children, 
you just believe things and they become like that's gospel to you yes, and then quite literally. it's very very hard to break away from those things and so when you broke that seal because I remember you know I can only talk from my experience but like, I remember I told one person and there was like an enormous amount of relief and then it was like oh god I'm going to have to tell my mum and dad I'm going to have to tell my nan I'm going to have to tell my family you know was it how did that feel when you sort of ripped the band-aid off for the first time? Yeah, exactly the same. There was this relief that then was suddenly swamped by the <gasps> oh, there was, that was that took so much effort and time to do that. That's one person. I was always terrified of people thinking that I'd lied to them and that I'd lived ah. a lie, even though, like I say, from a very young age, I said to myself, "You're not going to put off doing things that you want to do." Because, oh, people will think I'm gay if I do those. I spent my whole life people calling me gay. Mm. I just refused to agree with it. So I didn't want people to think, oh, this person's been living like a complete lie and it's not the person I know and things like that. And had you had any sort of brief flings or had there been nothing? Yes, I had. But I separated that out completely from my life. It was never. So the people like my friends at uni wouldn't have known about the brief flings I had at uni. There was probably one slight crossover, um, but that was it. And and people still didn't know with that person. Mm. So, yeah, I kind of kept things very separate. It wasn't like I'd not had any experiences in that time, Mm. but I never allowed those experiences into my life. And then I was also terrified of, like, I really pushed them to the side and kept it as a secret thing yeah. because I was terrified of the, the world's meeting. Yes, of course, and being outed. The, the, the greatest fear. Well, I remember one of my greatest fears as a young person. And so how did telling everyone go? Well, do you know what? By that point, I do believe that it's kind of, you just do it at the right time, don't you? Yeah, I But think by so. that point, I was older. I When I told my close friends, and actually a lot of them were Christian, I already knew they wouldn't care mm-hmm. and that they would just be absolutely fine. I have to say that one thing I do get frustrated, if anyone's listening to this and someone comes out to them, I think pretty much the worst thing you can say to someone is, I know. I, I still love you. Oh, oh yeah, I know. No, but no, go on, sorry. Even that I still love you, because I just think love is, don't talk about that as if that's the top one. That's the basic. Yeah, right. Like accepting me and everything yeah, about my yeah, life yeah. is like way up yeah. on top of that. Yeah. So don't say this as it's kind of like, oh, I still love you. It's like, yeah, I love you too. Like, but it's acceptance that's the the most important yeah Yeah, it's the minimum I want you to Um, celebrate me yes exactly and that's what so I then went on this journey with my friends of saying okay so now after you've asked me if I've had a girlfriend every time I've seen you and since I've come out to you you've never asked me if I've had a boyfriend that's not okay like you need to accept my life and actually like celebrate my life exactly like you say and how was the and how was their response to that they were really enjoying learning more about it like so often it's these communities that are like separated, aren't they? Like, and a lot of my friends wanted to have queer friends and to understand mm. more about this kind of thing. And so then I was giving them the opportunity to learn about it. So they were great. That's so awesome. Not all of them, but yeah. But the ones that matter. <laughs> They're dead to me. <laughs> Quite right. And what about your siblings and your family? If you don't mind sharing. No, not at all. I'm very much an oversharer, by the way. Great. Perfect for podcasting. <laughs> I... Yeah, I was very... By the time I told my parents, I actually came out to my parents in a letter. And I do sometimes advise people to do this because my fear with my parents were that they would react in a way, in a moment, that 
would offend me that I would find very hard to get over later and, on. And you'd hold it for the rest of your life. Yeah, and it's yeah. not fair on... That's really not fair on them because it's like when you do a surprise party someone, someone screams. You can't choose not to scream. Like, it, yeah. I didn't want to, like, invoke this response that I would then find, take offence to. That is such a great piece of advice. That is such a great piece of advice. Yeah, and then I told my twin brother... I, in, in the letter to my parents, I said, don't come and speak to me first as well. Speak to my twin brother and ask any first questions to him because also some of the first questions might be quite offensive to me. And so he will be able to explain a bit more and then we can come together. And it just, it did flow very nicely. Obviously there was this being You really big... micromanaged it, but I, I really, <laughs> but I really respect that. I really respect that. <laughs> Speak to him, then you get to the next level. Then once you get through the next level, you've got to do a questionnaire. And then once you've got through that, you get a medal. Yeah. You get a key, the keys for the door. I'm in the room. <laughs> That's very me. Yeah. And I, it helped at that point in my life as well, because I did the very much all or nothing thing. It said in the letter, you don't get to dictate anything. Like I am me and that is it. You accept fully or I'm gone. And that's a real privilege of coming out older because obviously you must have had your own, you know, means of of, of living and you had your own friends and you had a life beyond uh, the sort of nuclear family. Yes, I had a family. I, I also had like my twin brother and my older brother, for example, I knew that they would never like mm. turn me away. And then, yeah, really close friends and like my family, like other people that like family isn't just blood. No, and so, absolutely not. And I kind of thought, I don't think they're going to to it but if they yeah i could have i definitely could i can drop people it's so toxic to have people that don't agree with who you are fundamentally so i could have dropped them i think but i think dropping friends is something that i've learned we've spoken about age quite a lot haven't we but that's something i've really learned in my 30s not dropping sounds so harsh when you sort of go every time i'm out with you or you're doing a slagging off people Mm. this is so toxic for me and I know that when I'm not here, you're going to be slagging off me to someone else. You know, it's so good, I think, to, you sometimes hold on to relationships where you go, well, I've known them so long. And you go, well, great. It was a it was a friendship for a for, for, for that season. Yeah, and there's so many people in the world to meet and make friends with. You yeah. don't need to hang on to the old ones. Yeah, especially the ones that you sort of go, are you bringing me down every time I see you? Yeah, or because... not accepting me or saying casual, offhand, homophobic things. And especially from school and things like that you don't you're not choosing your friendships at that point and you're, no. you can be very very different people oh gosh yeah hugely so i had a very nice kind of coming out with my parents and i agree with you that it's a real privilege of being older but at the same time i do look back and just think how sad that i couldn't come out when i was mm-hmm. younger because yeah. my partner he's bulgarian and he had a horrible life growing up because he did come out when he was very young and then literally was like physically and verbally bullied his whole life until getting out to the UK. What's the what's LGBT rights like in Bulgaria? I mean lowest of the low. Yeah. It's still like they're trying to do a pride march each year that gets completely destroyed by neo Nazis and and by the government and the police as well. It's very right. it's one of the worst in, in Europe. Thank God he's here. Yeah, exactly. And so he he couldn't wait to get out and come to, and come to the UK. Um, but I still, part of me does miss kind of the things that I could have done mm-hmm. earlier in my life being an out person. Um, but also, when you come out, you come out. It's, yeah. it's great. And there's no, you know, you longing for something doesn't change it. So it's good to just grab onto, you know, the life that you have and go, well, I've done this thing now. I had an email once um, into the show about from someone that came out in their 50s. And that was one of the things I said. I didn't actually share it. Sometimes I don't share the emails because I think 
they're maybe they might give away too much about a person or I think would that person have wanted to share so much about them you know they might look back and go oh actually I, I did, wish I didn't say that on a mass on a podcast it's not massive it's sort of big-ish um, but um, but but that was the the thing that he said that he was like determined not to spend the next 30 years of his life wishing that he'd come out he was just going to be pleased that he was out because mm. you know you do it when it's safe yeah and I have to say, I very much had the attitude of I'm going to enjoy life. I had so many amazing experiences like that in my 20s was the time that I was going like all around the world, which was strange as well, because one thing I look back on is like I eventually came and settled in London working for the same charity I'd been in in the last country I'd right. been working in. And I came and worked in their headquarters because I needed to get out. Like I was working in places where you are killed if you're yeah, gay. Right. So being kept in the closet was very much like a necessary thing and then it was actually quite hard once I started working in the headquarters in London and then I was out there were certain countries I couldn't go to I couldn't go to Tanzania at one point because we found out that there was a new law that if someone knows that someone's gay and doesn't report it to the police then they can be arrested so like the staff in my in the office there knew that I was gay because I'd by that point done Bake Off and things yeah. so yeah and, and going to Nigeria like I went on trips to Nigeria and yeah Uganda places that How did that... you feel when you were in those I know that you weren't out at that point but like you know within how how was that? It was really tough to hmm. see because it's there's been so many huge changes in the UK yes there is like there's horrible things going on with mm-hmm. like against the trans community at the moment and there's still a lot of horrible things that happen where uh, people are assaulted and hate crimes but there's also been so much progress and it's very strange going to countries where it feels like queer it's not that queer people don't exist but there's no chatter about it there's nothing Mm. you don't feel anything as you're walking around there's nothing queer anywhere but you know that it's there underground and being kept there Um, so yeah in some ways that is very depressing Mm. Yeah, the only time I've, as an adult, an, an out person, has been when I've been, like, getting connecting flights. I remember being in the airport in Dubai and being like, God, I look gay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in, like, a tracksuit with, like, high tops and, a like, you know, a beanie on. I was like, Jesus, I look gay. I look really gay. <laughs> I think I also still use my privilege that I remember going to Ethiopia and that's a very scary place for queer people and I remember going and deliberately no matter I had a, I'd had a briefing before saying like you've got to be really careful blah blah and I was like straight away relace my shoes with rainbow laces and like putting queer things putting them everywhere and talking to people all the time about not about me but talking about queer people like having those conversations and holding to people account and I that's what I've always done all the countries that I lived in I always remember having conversations with people. And in some ways, it was actually easier having those conversations with those people thinking that I wasn't gay because mm. then I was just challenging them about it and challenging them about oppression, things that they felt oppressed by. Okay, so why are you oppressing these people? Yeah, what have you they okay done to you? These people being yeah. oppressed. Yeah. yeah, so I, in some ways, it was actually quite a good time in my life for being able, like, of activism and being able to challenge mm. things and talk to people about it. And then once you were out... You came back and you've written the letter and you've and everyone's responded pretty well to that. Did you like were you like, okay, get me to GAY in the West End? Get like were you like, I gotta grab onto this now? No. No. I wasn't, no. You didn't you didn't like I don't think I've I think naturally 
some of the things that I liked growing up would have been, you know, the typical things that people would say, okay, like wanting to do ballet dancing, etc. Yeah. But actually a lot, I don't, I didn't felt feel like I fit with the scene. I don't drink alcohol. Right. I don't take drugs. I have done in the past. But mm-hmm. like as a general thing, I haven't in my life. Like I am the, I remember one time when I was in, living in Edinburgh and I was quilting in my living room on my own on a Saturday sure. evening and someone jumped over the fence of the garden, ran across and knocked on the window to say, most people are going out, mate. I was like, yeah, I know. I'm just quilting. It's fine. <laughs> like, I think I've always, I, I didn't necessarily gravitate towards the scene and going out and meeting people. Um, and I still, like I said, I still had a lot of friends that I didn't want to get rid of. So for a long time, still the majority of my friends weren't queer as well. Mm. But then London happened. And London just is a brilliant place. It's a and great place. You meet so many different people. So it's not, for me, it wasn't about finding. Because that's the other thing. I don't feel like I fit massively with gay men and that kind of grouping of people. Mm. I don't feel like I usually like the same kind of things right. as a general thing. And so I just enjoyed meeting all different kinds of queer people and building my own community. But yeah, it was definitely a slow burn. It wasn't a throw myself into the gay scene. Mm. And how long before you were on Bake Off? Because then you were sort of like a, you know, a visible gay. Yeah, I think it was probably like five years. That's not long. No, that's, and that's not long to be out and then be like, you know. And that's the strange thing. That's what I found so strange on Bake Off. So many people sent me messages. I mean, I got so many dick pics as well. I was going to say, I imagine <laughs> you received quite a few of those. Uh, although Michael got more because if you've got like, if, some, if they know, because I was already with Nick at that point. Um, if you're single, you get way more. Um, but <laughs> I got so many messages of people saying like, oh, it's so amazing you seeing seeing you on the programme. Because also, Bake Off hasn't, Bake Off's always had queer contestants. Yep. But hasn't always really made it that visible. And we were the mm. first series probably that were really allowed to, like it was always, it was showing, like it showed me and Nick kissing at the end of the very last episode. And it took three weeks, but I got permission to wear like a rainbow t-shirt that said equality on it. And then a full rainbow ombre thing. And so Aya really was one to celebrate uh, queerness. And I got loads of letters of people saying, oh, it's amazing seeing a a really strong out person on TV. Like I couldn't do that. I'm 24 and I'm whatever. And I'm like, I am not like Bake Off David is not me. That's the thing that you're seeing, this out confident person I was you at 24 and so it was quite nice to be able to let people know like for whatever you're thinking that I am you can be that person yeah um and you don't need and you also don't need to wait as long as I did (laughs) but that's important isn't it it's so lovely that, that you've been that for people and that you've been you know by being visible and by being yourself you know you're inspiring people yeah, I think that I think Bake Off also is such a a nice program. Yep. The whole thing is nice, isn't it? So it kind of helps. Like most stories are a positive thing, so it's helped that it's kind of it's helped for me as well to like reframe all of that part of my life as a very positive thing. Yeah, that's that's nice. So what's next for you? I know that you're still working as a nurse, and you've released. I need to get your kids' books, obviously, <laughs> yeah. and you've released your grown up healthy cookbook as well. Are you like what's next for you? What do you want to do now? I'm just going to take over the world. I mean, you've done so much. You must. You simply must. I'd vote for you. When you were like, you know, I thought I'd be prime minister. I was like, actually, this is a great idea. Can someone ring someone? I don't. I've never been driven by 
um, like I don't I've never been driven by money like for example when I worked for the majority of my life I've worked for charities and when I worked in Malawi I remember I got paid one pound an hour for the job I was doing there which was a good wage in Malawi for the hospital mm. I was in um, so I've never been driven by money and I haven't been driven by fame and things like I never wanted to go on TV like Bake Off was a random application and I didn't get on I was a reserve that got called on the last second and things. Oh really? Yeah and a lot of people have applied for year after year I, I mean, I don't often say this, but I'd stopped watching Bake Off. I did a oh random God. application because I went to my pottery class and brought in a bake. And apparently it had been the, the final and everyone at pottery was saying, oh, you've got to apply. So I just did that evening. And so I kind of like just falling into things. I'm not someone that plans the next thing. But anyone listening, I'll do anything. Anyone listening <laughs> out there? I just like having new experiences. I don't, I, I don't want to be one of those people that has like a single career and just do one thing. Oh, God, no, that's... And so I don't know what my next step will be, but I, I, lo- I also like working in the medical sphere and I could quite easily just go back and do that full time as well. It's nice that you're, I, I was going to say backup, but that's actually not the job because you clearly are very passionate about it and really love it. But it's good when your other thing is something that you really love as well. Yeah. Because it means whatever happens, great. Yeah. And I love doing, I love doing podcasts. I really like food writing but I do think that I trained for a long time to be like a healthcare professional that does travel and tropical diseases and so yeah I kind of don't want to give that up totally (laughs) no you shouldn't you shouldn't now the final question that we ask everyone that comes on the show is sort of you know uh, it's like a phone call to your teenage self or if you don't want to think of yourself when Gok came on he was like no if I rang myself everything would change and I don't want anything to change so maybe someone in a similar position to you. And I'm thinking about the version of you when you said you were a, a teenager and you just pushed it down so much that, you know, you were, you know, so that it, you know, it was there, but it wasn't there. If you could reach out to someone that's doing a similar thing to that at the moment or indeed yourself at that point, what would you say? I would, the thing that I say to everyone and your friend Tom Allen mm-hmm. has written a book about it. It's about shame. Mm-hmm. Like my life changed. My partner gave me a book by Brené Brown. Oh, I love Brené Brown. And she wasn't around. I mean, she was around, but her book wasn't around when I was a teenager. But I would just ask myself to go and read and learn about shame and how damaging shame can be for your life, and how. And that's all I can say. Like my life is a totally different life when I read that book by Brené Brown mm. and learned about shame and freedom and vulnerability. Perfect. Brené Brown, go and read it. It's a really good book. And Tom Allen's book. And Tom's book, of course. <laughs> yes, Tom's book is called No Shame and it's excellent. But we're talking about you, David. Thank you so, so much for coming on my podcast. It's been a joy to talk to you and now we're friends. So that's great. Yay. <laughs> you can babysit when I finally have a child. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's fine. Well, I loved that. Check out all the stuff that David's up to and have a look at his cookery books. Uh, What a treat it was to talk to him. I'll be back next week. If you want to get in touch, please do. You always can. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I hope you have a brilliant week, whatever you're doing. And I'll be back next week. Bye bye. (music) 